back to Sports and Society. It's been a little while, but we're back and we're going to do something a little bit different for you all this time. But uh, this is Brad and I'm back with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back. Let's do this. Yeah, it's exciting. I, I As we were about to come on air, I was thinking that this is probably one of my favorite things that I've done. And maybe that's because I just get to chat with you uh, every once in a while. But it's just fun. Yeah, I, I'm much the same in that. Just having some intentional space to talk about things that are interesting to us, but more than that, I just value being able to express some thoughts with a, a like mind and then just enjoying the space together is huge for me. Well, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know about you, but I talk about a lot about sports, but the people that I talk about ideas with are not necessarily the ones I talk about sports with, and the ones that I, I talk to sports about don't really necessarily care about ideas so it's nice to have a place to merge the two in some ways and i hope that we can do that and you guys will enjoy uh joining us in that space as i drop uh pennies on the ground here in my office so (laughs) yeah i'm much the same i love that uh i love that way of couching it let's do it well uh let's kind of reintroduce ourselves here as we get started kyle you want to share us a little bit about yourself maybe Sure, yeah. So I'm currently living in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm a high school history teacher. And I would say my relationship with sports started with playing a lot of sports growing up in the pretty traditional American suburban way of life that said uh, in this post-post-World War II generation that uh, if you're not playing youth sports, then you're not an American uh, and so that was kind of my introduction into it. And then I uh, found a little bit of freedom and space in the liberal arts in college, which led me to ask uh, some, I don't know, more intentional or more insightful questions about my relationship with sports. And so I grew up a UK fan, a Reds fan, a Bengals fan. It's difficult to call myself much of a fan of any particular club or team. At this point in time, I would say I still have an allegiance to the Reds, although the last few seasons have made it really difficult to (laughs) care all that much. And what the University of Kentucky basketball program has become is unidentifiable to where I started in my fandom. So I don't have much connection with that outside of my friends. And then I don't really watch much football at all anymore so the Bengals have long uh, I I probably would struggle to name three players on the team Uh, but at any rate I still find myself really compelled by soccer obviously tennis golf uh, and so still spend way too much time watching sports so here I am talking about the crossover between those things very good. And if you're wondering what Kyle teaches, the the post post World War II uh, generation should tell you a little something about that. He's a uh, he may be in the history realm. So uh, <laughs> I don't know anybody else that would use that uh, phraseology. But there you go. At least uh, I didn't say dialectical materialism. <laughs> um, I was well, tempted, but I withheld. It'll be interesting. I'm intrigued to see how you're, uh, you mentioned not being a fan so much, but if the Reds, uh, some of their exciting moves in the offseason pay off, I'll be intrigued to see how that captures your energy and attention over the coming year. So that, that'll be interesting. Yeah. I mean, you and me both. Um, what about uh, you? 
So uh, I'm currently in Roanoke, Virginia, one of the most underrated cities in the country, if I must say so. Um, I don't know what to term what I do. I guess I'm most comfortable referring to myself as a community activist slash organizer, but I have about 100 different things I try and do and fail at most of them. Um, But uh, (laughs) as with Kyle, I grew up playing sports. I don't know that I had Kyle's uh, natural gift for it on some level, but grew up playing a bunch of basketball. Uh, was forced to play baseball even though I hated it. Um, soon just went to basketball and then in college uh, played competitive ultimate frisbee. Uh, have come out of that now. Heel, still a huge fan of frisbee, um, but also over that time developed an immense appreciation for Arsenal Football Club and the world of uh, Premier League soccer and beyond. Uh, also going way back to my roots in Charlottesville, big UVA fan, although um, really all that amounts to is caring about basketball. And, man, I wish and I, I wasn't as much of a fan. I um, I wish I was a fan of a mediocre team where it didn't matter whether we won or lost because, man, worrying about winning is so stressful. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, much the same with Colin that I have a very fraught relationship with how much time I spend with sports and yet at the same time seem to find great joy and also can recognize the um, – the power it it has. I just had a conversation this past week with a guy about how I feel like in some ways I'm comfortable with people of color because I played basketball so much growing up uh, and it was a great equalizer in some ways. And uh, when you grow up and you're no longer playing basketball, you may not be seeing the same people that you did. And what happens when those connections break down or when those uh, bridges are gone is always an interesting question to me. But anyway, that's a, kind of some of the kind of stuff we'll talk about i imagine over the course of the next little bit but yeah great do you want to talk about a little of our new approach as compared to how we've done this in the past yeah so in the past we've kind of kind of just had uh, a long winded uh you know kyle and i are two white guys so it doesn't take much for us to be long-winded about things so you know you get us started and we just kind of keep going but uh, we're aiming to be a little more focused on this pick one particular article each week uh that we'll share with you guys along with just a little tidbit of what we've enjoyed this past week and what we're kind of looking forward to or uh interested in seeing in the coming weeks but mainly we're going to focus on one particular article that we think lies at that kind of intersection of sports and society and where they where they overlap and where they where they bump up against one another Great. Is that a fair description? Yeah, that sounds excellent. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm excited about having a little more focus about what we're doing because I think we can, without being so long-winded white male uh, pundits, uh, still approach some of the topics that are really meaningful to us. And I think that's what both of us care about most. Uh, we should probably share, if you haven't picked up on it already, that we both lean pretty far to the left. So uh, just be aware of that as you dive <laughs> into our catalog. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, why don't we uh, jump into it, Con? Tell me about something that you uh, that captivated you this past week. Yeah, so I was... I I think a little bit more surface level interest. The first thing that came to my mind is that golf got my attention this week for the first time. And I think uh, it was on two levels. The first part was the story with Matt Kuchar. Mm. And then the second one was, 
I was interested in this tournament this week, the Genesis Open at Riviera in Los Angeles. And to the Riviera interest, I think I was just happy to be watching golf again. And I had the first few weeks of the season are always hard for me to get into because it's such a long season. And so I feel like, especially after the FedEx Cup, I was just, I was bored with it. I wasn't interested mm -hmm. anymore. And it just wasn't compelling. But for some reason, this week got my attention again. And I was excited to just watch him golf. But with the Matt Kuchar story, I found that so compelling uh, and such a fascinating story. And it can maybe even be in a, a segue into kind of what we're talking about this week. Because the Matt Kuchar story, for me, coincided with reading about so many of the players that took a $1 million appearance fee for mm. playing in Saudi Arabia hmm. uh, just a couple weeks ago. And just the, I, I don't know the, um, so the story of Matt Kuchar is he won a tournament in Mexico last year and he was using a weekly caddy instead of his normal caddy. And he won about $1.3 million and paid his caddy $5,000, which was a pre-tournament agreed-upon price. And this is a local caddy that caddies in this course right outside of Cancun, Mexico. So you can imagine the clientele of who plays that course. And uh, there's a lot of things that are pretty easy to fill in the gaps on. But nonetheless, caddies usually get 10% of winnings. And so... Matt Kuchar's weekly caddy would have gotten around $130,000 uh, in that Matt Kuchar paid him $5,000 is significant. And then that the caddy asked for $50,000 and Matt Kuchar refused and said, I'll pay you fifteen. dollars And then the guy refused fifteen, dollars And then it wasn't until it was a PR issue for the PGA Tour itself that Matt Kuchar capitulated and acquiesced on it and said, OK, I'll pay you $50,000. Uh, that whole thing was just kind of like the tone deafness of the PGA Tour uh, at first, or at least those that make up the PGA Tour, followed by the PR nightmare. Uh, and so that's when the capitulation came was significant. But all that to say, I was glad to just watch some golf on mute this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a perfect example of kind of the the way that you and I look at sports in some ways and that like, there's some discomfort about whether it's the Saudi Arabia or the, you know, who's funding the Genesis Open or whatever it may be. And yet there's still some joy that comes from sitting down and watching it for a little while. Exactly. Yeah. I, I will say I was amazed that Tiger was second best in the odds for this week, even though this is the worst course he's ever played on for his career, which is just amazing to me the way that he captivates the, the golfing world. Yeah, he's always a safe bet for Vegas, I think. Oh my. But what were you paying attention to? Well, it's so it's NBA All-Star weekend right now, and I have to say that the thing that brought me the most joy is my uh my boy from back at UVA, Joe Harris winning the three-point contest last night, beating Steph Curry uh to officially be titled the best shooter in the NBA this year. I think it's safe to say. Um <laughs> but no that's just, a big that's a big statement but go ahead <laughs> um just very cool to see this guy you know is a cult hero here at uva and went into the league and was essentially out of the league for two years came back in on a minimum contract and has worked his way on to now being you know averaging 13 plus points a game and arguably one of the top 
three or four best three-point shooters in the NBA. And that, for me, is just compelling. And then to watch him as he won this contest, and they're like doing this face cam where they're expecting some reaction for him as Steph misses his last shot. And he's this totally blank face. Like, this is what I do every day. I'm here for work. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a, if you're interested in Joe Harris, I highly recommend there was a piece in one of the New York papers about him, about how he rides the subway home from every game because he just looks like another hipster from Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty great i haven't heard that <laughs> yeah he, i mean he's making six million dollars a year and yeah he's riding the subway home and all of his teammates like dude you can afford a car at this point man <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good um, but yeah the story of joe harris just made me smile and you know i can't help but appreciate when one of those little things comes up and and uh you see it go through yeah absolutely Especially with Steph Curry as his competition, that makes it all the more compelling. I mean, it's hard, you know, either way, right? I mean, Steph winning in his hometown would have been huge, and I would have loved it. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. Joe Harris, who looks like he works at a coffee shop with his ratty beard uh, coming out and out shooting him, uh, is just amazing. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Standing up for the bearded guy everywhere. Thanks, Joe. (laughs) well let's uh let's jump into this article we have this week which is titled uh sports washing in the tangled web of europe's biggest clubs by barney rone i'm i'm sure i'm pronouncing that wrong of the guardian uh who if you're interested has a number of great articles was named sports writer or football writer of the year last year by uh, some of the folks in england but uh kyle do you want to give us a recap of what this whole thing is about sure so the title is quite revealing. However, it does include the word sports washing, which is a pretty new word. Uh, and it's followed by the tangled web of Europe's biggest clubs. Uh, and so I think what is most significant about this article is that this journalist, Barney Rone, who Brad mentioned, is like super well-respected in the U.K., uh, and outside the UK, because UK soccer is such a powerful export. But as I understand it, he is pointing to the problematic, continuous relationship that so many of these clubs have with ownership. And what is more is that the ownership of these clubs is often outside of the UK in the first place. And so I think there's a conversation to be had there. But not only that, the ownership of these clubs are involved in undeniably dubious and suspect and in some cases downright criminal acts insofar as their means for procuring the funds for being able to own a club soccer team that at this point in time necessitates just an incredible sum of money. Mm -hmm. And so that these clubs are owned by these either individuals or companies, and in some cases tied directly to governments, it becomes really significant, and even more so when these governments are tied to things like downright human rights abuses that everyone knows about. Uh, And not only human rights abuses, but if you were to go down the list, uh, as provided in the article by Amnesty International, uh, these... Uh, these acts against things that most of us would say are 
the the hallmarks of a civilized culture um, are, are are pretty harrowing. Uh, and so the question emerges. Well, there are many questions that I think emerge, but um, the question that emerges in the forefront is like, okay, so what do we do with this? What do we do about the fact that these clubs are owned by companies and individuals that are part of what feels like in a worldwide oligarchy that is making us the fools for being consumers of a product that is hinging on uh, really awful stuff. Uh, and so it's, it's in some ways a great place for us to start, I think, uh, in that it is our ultimate question, right? Of like, how can we justify caring so much and spending so much time watching, uh, watching sports uh, and in particular soccer, which we both love so much and pay so much attention to when uh, the whole thing hinges on these transnational corporations that are su super suspect and then also these governments that are even more suspect. Uh, so, yeah, it just the article kind of talks through the the literal facts in regards to how some of these teams, so Bayern Munich, uh, PSG, Manchester United, Manchester City, FC Bayern Munich, uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid, all the biggest clubs in the world have connections with either the Russian government, the Saudi government, uh, the Arab Emirates, the Abu Dhabi government, uh, on and on and on. Uh, and so when you think about something like uh, Saudi Arabia taking out journalists but also making it possible for us to watch soccer on Saturday morning, uh, there are some questions that need to be asked and attempted to be answered, I think. Yeah, so at, towards the end of the article, there's this quote that I think really reveals what we're trying to do, which is um, Rune uh, says about this, that uh, what is required in response is a new kind of critical eye, or at the very least, a wider circulation of the basic information, the forensics tools with which to make a judgment. And I think that's really what we're trying to do here is um, ask our, figure out what questions we need to be asking and, and start to delve into some of those what that critical response to those sports needs to look like. And this is a great example that um, it's interesting. You know, I think um, sports washing is a term that it appears came from Amnesty International and um, as really they talk about the chances when it's been used going dating well back into the World Cup in the 30s when Mussolini kind of used the World Cup as a chance to uh, have a coming out party for fascism all the way up until Russia's Olympics most recently where sports was used to show the magnificence and, uh, and, and singularity of these countries. But um, he does lay out the definition here as um, the way sports is used to launder a reputation, usually a human rights record to wash a little blood away. Um, and this goes back to, and, you know, Kyle and I have been in this environmental world where greenwashing has been a big thing for years, where you look at somebody like Walmart that's making themselves appear good by putting some environmental things friendly things out there to buy but um what is the cost in some ways to our society to see sports used in the same way and but i think that in some ways the biggest question for me comes back to uh, understanding the complexity of it all and so one of the things that um i will say is that uh it's a little hard to follow the article in some ways because of the way he conflates 
ownership with sponsorship, which they uh, are very different and yet I think also tied together. So, for instance, you know, Qatar owns PSG. One of the Emirates owns Man City. Um, but and so, but how do we understand that? And, and then it just gets into all of the complexities that you. It's really hard for those of us that are follow this all the time and consider ourselves moderately intelligent to follow. How do we expect other folks to follow in the same way? Is one of the big questions that this leaves me with. Yeah, and I think we have that in common with Barney Rone, who wrote the article. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think he like played on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it m- makes me think just to read through one of the paragraphs where he's interested uh, introducing this, and he says, Madrid are sponsored by the Emirates Airline of the UAE, another of the Emirates, Abu Dhabi and City. City are taking on Schalke, who are sponsored by Gazprom, which is owned by Russia, which is in effect at war in Syria with Qatar, which is being blockaded by Dubai, which is a financial services partner of United, whose next opponents will be PSG, who are owned by Qatar, which is pretty much where we came in. Confusing, isn't it? And it is. It's incredibly confusing. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the first, it's not, if not the first hurdle, one of the major hurdles of like, okay, so if you're going to start asking these questions about how should we be watching sports and to what extent should we be paying attention to ownership and to what extent should we be ta- paying attention to ownership's connection politically with governments worldwide, it's like, okay, if you're going to open that box, you, you've got some complicated questions on the horizon. Uh, and so beginning with kind of this acceptance of the complexity seems like a good place to start, or at least where I go with it, of like, okay, I'm not going to understand all of this at first glance. Uh, but nonetheless, that that doesn't take away, I think, from Amnesty International attempting to name what this is and saying like, okay, this is complicated, but we're going to draw some charts and graphs and we're going to release some information that makes it more in the forefront. Yeah, and I think that that takes me back to this question of um, who has authority to speak on this on some level. Um, Because they mentioned in the article how, you know, at one point some of the stuff that uh, has happened in the Emirates has come up and Man City fans seem to really you know, kind of try and wipe that under the rug. And the question in some ways becomes who will people listen to and, and can push these things out? Cause it is hard to know. I mean, they mention in here, you know, uh, Arsenal is taking money from the oppressive regime in Rwanda, but do we object to that over Stan Kroenke, who's the majority owner supporting Trump? You know, where is the line in here? And also like, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the bigger questions we have in general in terms of, you know, there's no doubt that the regime in Rwanda is not great. And yet when we compare it to some of the other African regimes, uh, it's not the worst thing in the world. So how do we prioritize which ones to get mad at at once? Or how do we, and then in the end, how do we come out of this, not just driving ourselves crazy and avoiding the whole thing? Right. And so I think Maybe one of my first avenues that I start to travel to get out of the mess, and this is just personally sharing just kind of like where my brain goes with it, but I think one of the first things that is valuable about this endeavor is placing the current situation in historical context, Hmm. and I don't mean to play the history teacher card, but... (laughs) Too late. 
codifying the significance of Mussolini overseeing the World Cup is pretty easy to do. You know, it's like, okay, this is pretty homogenous. We've got a fascist dictator in a fascist country promoting his black shirts by his team wearing uh, black uniforms. And so in that way, it's like pretty easy to get. It's pretty easy to understand. And I think what is significant or ultimately so interesting and therefore valuable is how this is not that. Hmm. And so any attempt to kind of put it alongside 1934 fascist Italy is a mistake. And so one of the first valuable things to do is to say like, okay, this is really different. And we're going to prove to you that it's different. And so if we are going to deal with the problems that Amnesty International is making apparent, then the first step is kind of just this basic education in that this is really different. Uh, And it's not quite as homogenous as we'd like it to be. And so like you said, Arsenal promoting tourism in Rwanda at first glance seems like, well, that's great. Yeah, we should visit Rwanda. Like, good for Rwanda. I would imagine, you know, in, like, some cases, like, someone, a casual fan sees that and, like, oh, Rwanda's been through some stuff. Like, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. great. You know, I love Rwanda, like, armbands and stuff. Uh, But it's like, okay, hold on. Let's get better at unpacking that at first glance. Let's have a viewership that's capable of saying, hold on, wait a second. I want to watch soccer, but I also don't want to be played the fool here. Uh, so I guess that's my first start. I don't know how that comes across. Well, I think that that uh, the uh, I appreciate that, and I think that that raises this question in some ways of how do we educate ourselves? And so I look at you know you and I being fairly well informed folks, and yet uh, I don't know about you, but I don't have time to read the Economist every week. And even if I did, it's not going to include everything that I need to know about these situations. And so like. You know, I know vaguely what's happened in Qatar because of the stuff around the World Cup and some of that stuff. But, you know, it it takes energy for me to figure out why uh, the Emirates are so negative. And that's something that maybe you and I are willing to put in. But how much of that can we expect from the general public? Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> Especially in a culture where to do so comes with the pejorative name tag of being a snowflake, mm. you know, of that, like um, the, um, the moment you start to ask complex questions, it's can the path towards it being called anti-Americanism in our American case is seemingly a really short jump at this point in time. And so to point to complexity uh, is not always the most interesting or fun thing to do. Uh, and it's often met with a whole lot of derision, I think. Um, so is there a way out? I'm curious to hear, like, if I just asked you the upfront question, like, okay, so what do we do uh, with all this knowledge? Uh, I wonder what the next step is or how you go to a next step or maybe some options that come to mind. You know, I think, you know, the first question is just, I think you need to know what you're getting in bed with. And so when you have a team of any kind, you need to know who is behind that team. And so that, you know, the big question is who is paying for this thing that I'm enjoying right now? Um, Mm -hmm. Because let's be honest, it's not you. Even if you're paying for a cable subscription, you are not the one that is funding 
this enterprise by large part. And so figure yep. out who is funding whatever sport it is that you're engaged in. Uh, and then informing yourself about that. I think that's the very first step. And then I think there, there's a secondary step of figuring out how much is, what is the level of influence that those things have over the sport or what is the sport giving to those things? And I, you know, I'm not necessarily, you know, you and I obviously love this game and love watching it. Um, but I think the the question becomes in some ways, like there is a point where we boycott it. And I think you and I have gotten to that point with football, but when I look at soccer and I see this, I don't see necessarily the direct causal link between what's happening in the premier league and enjoying what's happening on that field and it getting back to um, the green wash or the sports washing. So I suppose in this case, in some ways, if I would suggest that if you can figure out what Qatar is doing and not let them buy you off, then in some ways that gets you past that hurdle. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I mean, it's, it's clear that just because it works for us doesn't mean it works for others and that the algorithm would suggest that uh, it's much more complex than that. Sure. And so that makes me start to think about where I find some hope in this because it's easy to read this and just wallow <laughs> and be like, oh my goodness, like I, I sensed all of this and uh, imagined all of this, uh, especially when you start to read the advertising on a jersey. It's like, ah, oh, gosh, that's probably messy if I were to like look behind where that comes from. But I think to something just this week of Kaepernick settling with the NFL over the collusion case as a little glimmer of hope. And I think it, it can apply here to a certain extent, right? That you had space for an athlete to take a physical action like taking a knee which led to a cultural reckoning that is still happening and hopefully will continue to happen. And that the NFL was unwilling for this to go to court, I think is evidence of the fact that there is a critical mass out there Mm. that the NFL fears. And so I think in some ways you can read Kaepernick settling as, oh man, I would have loved for that to go public, (laughs) right? But it's also, I think, evidence that the NFL is scared of what's out there. And so in that way, I think a lot of these bodies and corporations and governments that are kind of behind this thinly veiled oligarchical control of our sports world, uh, I I think there's an emerging critical mass. And maybe it's always been there. And I'm sure you can find evidence in lots of places. But I, I find a lot of hope in that settlement case that okay, we're, we're being noisy enough uh, to make somewhat of a difference. I don't know if that strikes you in any way. It does, and I think it, uh, it, there's even more I would push for. One of the uh, the paragraphs in here talks about how Germany is different from any of these other clubs because they don't, excuse me, they don't allow majority outside ownership of their clubs except in very rare exceptions. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there's a couple examples here where they mention that Bayern – Munich fans have pushed back on the relationship with Qatar to some degree, and same with Schalke fans against Gazprom. And I would hope that, you know, when you have, or we can start to push for and support those kind of ownership rules that are a little bit different, because I do think that when it all goes to who who owns things changes everything. Um, 
And so if we can start to chip away at that, but then also letting your voice be heard and and that that critical mass is out there, I think is important. And I, I just hope that we don't get to a place where, and I fear that this is where we're headed, where, you know, it matters for the NBA because the NBA can appeal to, um, a fandom that is largely left-leaning, whereas the NFL just doesn't care because they know that their fandom doesn't isn't interested in those conversations. Right. Um, and so the, I, I worry that that's kind of the segmentation that we're we're headed towards. That's going to allow sports to operate kind of in their spheres, um, especially in the United States, where I think you have so many different options potentially to choose from. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I I'm yeah. not. I don't know that I have much hope, but. Um, it's these country, these companies and countries are so good at obfuscating exactly what is happening and insulating themselves from the real repercussions of those actions. That it's hard for me to see real changes coming from it necessarily. Yeah, especially when you think about the globalism that is so readily apparent, which makes obfuscation all the more available. I think that if you're operating in markets that are geographically and kind of figuratively even really far away from our critical mass that we like to hopefully consider ourselves a part of, that can be even a little bit more harrowing. But Mm -hmm. even still, that draws me to a slight glimmer of hope, I think, in that it's maybe a little bit difficult to articulate, but I, I guess it's just that to, to be made aware of how global this problem is enables, or, or I, I should say it this way, being so aware of how global the problem is makes anti-globalists look all the more absurd. Hmm. Uh, and so I think that might be, for me, kind of like a a sidebar point of hope of like, okay, if you're telling me that we should be an isolationist country, obviously talking about Trump, and he's like, hold on, just look at how the Premier League is working. There's no such thing as isolationism anymore, you idiot. And so in that way, I, I feel like it's it's an argument towards the anti-globalists. And so I don't know if there's much hope in that, but I, I, I take it there to some extent. Well, I have to say that's perhaps where I find hope with this in a slightly different way. And that the one part of the article that I kind of took issue with was Rune at one point says, in the media's defense, and indeed in everyone's defense, this is an entirely new thing, a process that has crept in from the fringes and is at times seems to be playing us all like a concert orchestra of violins. And my response is I disagree with that completely. I think that this has been happening forever. You know, I mean, you go back a hundred years, and all the news outlets were owned by oligarchs who had a particular angle to push on things, and so I, we just didn't know it. And I think the fact that we know it now allows us, to some degree, to be more critical about it. And so it's not—I don't think that this is a new phenomenon. I think that these countries and these companies have always had this kind of influence. We're just now more able to vet it. And so the fact that the Emirates once goodwill out of that sponsorship means that it gives us leverage in some ways to ask them questions about why we should give them that goodwill. And it, the fact that there's more information gives us the capacity to learn more about what what they're actually asking of us. Mm. And so that leads me to a question that you may be annoyed by. <laughs> Nonetheless, does this... <laughs> 
serve to drive home our uh, uh, respect for AFC Wimbledon? Or does this serve as maybe kind of a depressing fact that AFC Wimbledon probably wouldn't exist were it not for this paradigm already being in place? That, like, I think you could argue AFC Wimbledon necessitates the Premier League being as global as it is for it to have any sort of traction whatsoever. Or is it, like, a good place to put our faith of, like, hold on, there's another way of doing this. Let's keep pursuing another way of doing this. I I think it continues to give me a little bit of hope. Um, and that hope is not necessarily even couched uh, on the hope that the Premier League will go in this direction. It's more coached, uh, couched, uh, excuse me, in terms of, I think there are still club-level games and sport does still exist in a space where there, uh, there are more important things than the sponsors that are on the jerseys. And that, I think, uh, is what what AFC Wimbledon tells me, is that we can still find a space in this world for enjoyment when, with different models for what feeds us on, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. It may be somewhat to kind of get towards an ending point i found it so fascinating to truly think about what is being exploited with the premier league itself and i thought he made this point quickly but nicely is he was saying it's really the heritage and the sense of place Mm. as it exists in the uk that is being exploited Mm. i find that fascinating of like i feel like i would i would definitely read a book on that of like how the sense of place as it exists in the UK because of colonialism is so easily exploited and sold. Hmm. Like that's pretty fascinating to think about because he makes the point that almost, uh, well, at least the top four clubs in the UK, there's no UK sponsorship. Uh, it's all outside the UK mm-hmm. and most of the viewership is outside the UK. So uh, that's just fascinating to me. It is. And I think, uh, we'd be remiss too to end this conversation without just saying how much um, you and I appreciate on some levels what this money in the sport has allowed to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, every time there's a world cup, you go back to watching this club level game and it's so much better. And so when I watch man city versus Liverpool, yeah, it's an, it's an incredibly enjoyable thing to watch it this game played at that level and that's only yep. made possible because of these this kind of money flowing into the game and that's yep. a little upsetting and yet at the same time uh there is an aesthetic and pureness to the appreciation that can come from that i think yeah i couldn't agree more it's so fun watching those teams play <laughs> they're so good yeah yeah <laughs> Well, as we wrap up, Kyle, tell me about uh, what you're looking forward to or what's on your radar this coming week. Uh, I think I will be glad that next weekend there will will not be FA Cup matches. So I'll be able to watch the Premier League that we just destroyed. Oh, man, yes. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to just like completely contradict myself as fully as possible and say I'm looking forward to the Premier League next week. 
Maybe, unfortunately. So I probably will not watch the All-Star game tonight. It is tonight, right? It is tonight, yeah. Yeah, I never really find it that compelling or interesting, so I don't think I'll pay much attention to that. But I will watch the end of the golf tournament today as well. If it ends today, mind you. Yeah, yeah, it might not. I hope they do. Uh, What about you? Uh, Well, so I am not uh, a huge baseball fan, you know, kind of left that behind as I discovered cycling and other great sports such as that. But um, I will say that this uh, this slow free agency is a really captivating thing, and it's all going to have to come to a head here in the next few weeks. And I'm wondering what the next week holds for that uh, and, you know, what that might mean for a strike upcoming uh, this year. Yeah. Uh, it's just a, it's a very interesting time in the baseball world. Yeah, and talk about complicated that yeah. is a complex thing to try to understand what's happening. Well, and to go back to your Reds, they seem to be about the only team that's willing to spring and do something to bring in potentially team-changing talent at the moment. I don't know what that's all about. I have no idea what happened, but they spent a decade doing nothing, and then all of a sudden they made like the biggest trades of the summer. So I don't understand it. <laughs> oh, my. Well, anything else you want to share this week, man? I think that's about it for me. I enjoyed doing this. I'm glad to be back uh, and looking forward to ideas for next week. Absolutely. It is good to be back. And for those of y'all listening, please uh, follow and subscribe to us wherever you are. Give us a rating and review so more people can find us. And we hope to be back with you more regularly moving forward. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man.